C.S. Lewis once said that his imagination was baptized when he read George MacDonald's uh, fiction. And, um, and uh, what he meant was that, uh, that George MacDonald did for him what he did for me, which was that he filled the imagination with hope again, which is what our imaginations need. And I come tonight uh, as a pastor. I come tonight as a pastor to encourage you in, uh, in your recovery and in your renovation of your imagination. So I have three points tonight, like any good pastor does. Uh, first of all, God gave you a hungry imagination. He did. He gave it to you. It's a gift. He gave you a hungry imagination. Second point, the pornographic age has set itself against your imagination. And finally, your imagination can be baptized. I want you to leave with that. I won't be preaching tonight. It's, it's not a sermon, um, but I will refer to the scriptures throughout. We did a 10-week series uh, walking through the Old Testament, exploring the theme of the imagination in our sermon series on this. Tonight's just a sampling. It's just an overview. Um, it's, it's by no means comprehensive. So first, God gave you a hungry imagination. Here's a way to restate that. Your imagination is a divine gift, and it is hungry. Consider your physical appetite and how the intensity of the hunger ebbs and flows and be, can be curated and can be discipled and can be harnessed. You are hungry for nutrition from the outside to nourish you, to keep you alive, to cause you to grow up without your appetite for food, good food, nutritious food, nourishing food, you would have shriveled up years ago. Our imagination is our God-given capacity to see what is unseen. In the words of a pastor from California, to see what is unseen. And it's hungry. It's hungry to consume the good, the true, and the beautiful Without it, you'd shrivel up. So here's an example. What's your spring break plans? Can you see them? Maybe you don't know what your spring break plans are. That's okay. But, but if you do know, or if you have even an inkling of an idea, your spring break plans are not here, sitting among you. They are unseen. Nevertheless, they are real. What about um, the, the things that you would like to see changed? on your floor or in your life or, or at the school. I'm sure you've had ideas of how things could be better. You're seeing the unseen. What about your graduation plans? What are you going to do after you graduate? I was having a conversation with someone about this before the talk. What do you hope will be the next step for you? Can you see what that next step would be? You need the imagination to see it. Would you like to be married someday? Um, would you like to have a ministry partnership with someone that you're bonded with? What's that going to look like? What's it going to look like when you have a family? Can you see that? What's the calling of God on your life? What's your true calling where your, your background and your gifts all come together and, and become into full flower and its fullest potential released? What's that going to look like? You need your imagination to see that. What kind of person do you want to become? What do you want said about you at your funeral? What virtues would you want to emerge from your 
points of deepest suffering. Most of your life is ahead of you. What's ahead of you? And you're like, I don't know, father, priest, guy, why don't you tell me? (laughs) Our imaginations are hungry for these questions to be answered. And they can't be answered from just looking on the inside. You need something from the outside to call you up and call you out. We are hungry. Our imaginations have an appetite to know the story that we're in. One of the favorite parts of the Chronicles of Narnia was the story of Shasta, who was just a, he was a slave child, and he had this hungering to, to journey north. He didn't even know why, and so he just traveled north, and along the way there was this weird cat meowing at him, and, and, then, and then there was, a, there was a lion that was like tearing at his skin, and, and, and he finally finds his true home, and he realizes that all along, that cat, that lion was grace following him, and that he was not a slave, that he was a son of a king. He was a prince in a kingdom. He needed to know the story that he was in. His imagination was slowly, over time, awakened to his true self, his true identity, his true home, his true calling. And we need to see all of those things with our imagination. We have a ravenous appetite to metabolize a compelling story that we can grow up into. That's why we need to hear from our parents what they see emerging. We need to hear from our pastor what he sees, people who disciple us, what do you see emerging? What story am I in? Who am I? Feed my imagination. It's more hungry than my physical appetite. In fact, I'll starve to know what my calling is and who I truly am. What's my true name, Jesus? What's that name you're writing on the white stone that you're going to give me when I endure as you've called me to? Our imaginations want to know. They want, it wants to see. Once our imaginations have been captured by a worthy story, we'll want to live in that story, won't we? Ever seen someone buy a lightsaber? <laughs> Why? Why do they do that? Why do they go to Star Trek conventions? Why does my nine-year-old son wave a stick at me and say, Expecto Patronum? <laughs> And when I don't say it right, he corrects me on the exact, thank you, Gus, for that. Why does he do that? Because a compelling story captured his imagination, and now he wants to live in that story. This isn't something that we grow out of. This is something we have to grow up into. It's a discipleship process. Everything hangs on it. Will God's reality capture us? Will God's reality capture our imagination or will something else? Consider the creation account. Consider Genesis 1 through 3. In, in God's joy and utter delight, he, he, he brings creation into existence. He says, let there be. And he breathed life into Adam and Eve and set them in a garden and fed their imagination with a compelling vision. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hey, Adam and Eve, you have a calling and you have a self. Tend the garden. Mine these minerals. Give dominion. Set yourself in dominion over the birds and the fish. Be fruitful and multiply. Bring things into existence that weren't. I'm going to bring you some animals. Come up with names. Names. 
for the animals. And as you do, remember the story that you're in. Don't forget the story that you're in. Don't you forget that you've come from God and that you're going back to God. Don't forget who I am to you. I'm, a, I'm your father. I'm, I'm loving and creative and good. Adam and Eve had imaginations that needed to feed on that vision. They needed to see it again and again and again. As they worked, as they went about, they needed to know what is the purpose of all of this. We have a calling. We belong to, we bear God's image. He's good. You know, Satan didn't take a piece of fruit and stuff it in their mouth. I'm like, hey, you, 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 gotcha. He didn't do that. That's not where he started. He started by telling a different story about God. Tempting and seducing their imaginations with a false story and a false image. Did God actually say? Uh, Do you know that he's trying to keep something from you? Uh, Do you know the transcendent thing that would happen to you if you ate the fruit? I mean, don't get me wrong, Eve. You're fine, but do you know what it's like to know good and evil? Can you imagine what it would be like to be like God? And is God even here? Is he even good? Where's your father? It's just like in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'd be godlike if you just follow a different story. Imagine it. Expecto paternum. I want to live in that story where I'm godlike. I want to know what it's like to know good and evil. I'm ignorant and God's maybe not good and this is so present and so real. I'll just take it. And that choice ushered in what we're in now, the pornographic age. And what is the pornographic age? But a feast of false stories and false images and malnourished imaginations. God gave us hungry imaginations to call us up and out to his greater reality, but the pornographic age has set itself against our imagination. Augustine had a phrase to describe humanity turned in on itself. And the phrase is this, in curvatas and say. In curvatas and say, curved in on oneself. You know, God calls our imaginations up, but the pornographic age curves our imagination inward. God calls us up, he calls our imaginations up to something good and true and beautiful, but the pornographic age and its demonic Gnostic power bends our imagination in on itself. It bends and mangles it like a pretzel to desecrate the image of God and destroy us in the process. In the pornographic age, we are no longer nourished by God's exhilarating, dignifying, expansive story. We are malnourished on our chosen fantasies. Now, I know the word fantasy has other connotations. It has benign meanings. The name I'm, or the, the meaning that I'm investing in the word fantasy tonight is, is the false stories that most seduce our imaginations. The fan, these fantasies are the sum total of our desires and our pain. Where there's a hole in our identity, 
where there's, a, where there's an unmet need, and we all have those, where there's unresolved pain, when there's, when there's incredibly strong desire, we curve in on false stories that, that degrade us. Um, like Eve, we might be tempted to glory fantasies, um, dreams of grandiosity, where we imagine ourselves esteemed in the eyes of others, on a special stage, receiving accolades and special attention. Or maybe like her son Cain, we might be tempted by revenge fantasies because some of us have profound pain in our back and in our backstory. Revenge fantasies where we settle an old score and make our persecutor feel the pain they caused us. Or maybe like Elijah, we might be, we might turn from our calling uh, to, to into curve in on self-pity fantasies where we replay old battle tapes so we can avoid fighting new ones. One thinks of, of Ralphie from the Christmas story. After his parents gave him soap and he walks in and he's blind. And they're like, Ralphie, what did we do? And he's like, it was soap poisoning. And they're like, go! <laughs> special attention comes to people who have been specially victimized maybe it feels good to be a victim and so you replay, replay old victim tapes and you look at your battle scars and goes that's who I am that's myself I'm a victim or maybe like the armies of Israel before Goliath we might be paralyzed by anxiety fantasies which are catastrophic, worst-case scenarios that cause us to run away from a battle that we're supposed to be running towards. Don't think of pornography as just something to feed your sexual fantasies, although it is that, but it is more than that. We might think of pornography as a narcotic that makes your chosen hallucination seem more real. We might think of pornography as the heat waves in the desert that make the mirage of water seem all the more compelling. Just driving you further and further into death by making this fantasy seem like an attractive option. The pornographic age that we live in in 2016 simply has more tools and technology to supercharge the fantasies that most tempt us at any given time. Because content is now available all the time, and most of it's free or cheap. So, you know what, though? It might be that right now, sexual fantasies are your temptation. 20 years from now, it might be self-pity fantasies. When you're in the midst of responsibilities. 40 years from now, after the wounds of life pile up, they might be revenge fantasies. So our imaginations in the pornographic age are always being seduced. And your call is to find the path of faithfulness and discipleship. But let me speak for a few minutes about sex and romance fantasies. If for no other reason that it is a very common thing and almost no one ever talks about it. Um, so let's unpack sex and romance fantasies, just for a minute. Um, you and I hunger to, to, to be deeply connected to other people and to be loved by other people, and that is good. 
Um, We want it to be a powerful connection. We want it to be an exciting connection. Um, This is God's design. In our desire to be deeply connected to people, we might look upon someone, a man, a woman, and go, have the same reaction that we have to the new iPad coming out and say, I already own that. I already own that. In my mind, I'm going to consume that. I may not have the resources to own it, but in my imagination, I will own it. And we feed and, 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 and put that into our imagination. Our capacity to see what is unseen, we bend in on ourselves, bend in on our unmet need, bend in on our desire, and go for it. Not just seeing the unseen, but feeling the unfelt. I already own it. I'm already living happily ever after with him. I'm already living happily ever after with him. We have the perfect family. We have the perfect life. We have a fruitful ministry. On the mission field, of course. (laughs) I already own it. She's doing things with me and for me for which I've curated an appetite over the years. I already own it. I'm awash with the thrill of, of being wanted. I already own it. He's unattainable. She's unattainable. But I've made them attainable somehow. And she's mine. He's mine. I already own her femininity, his masculinity, their power, their emotional avail- availability, their body, their intelligence. I'm connecting with it all in a powerful way somehow. I already own it. If only I had the resources and opportunity, I just might make it happen. Behind all of this is a belief that in order to connect with others, I must consume them. In order to connect deeply, in order for my intimacy needs to be met, I have to consume a body. I have to consume a personality. I have to consume a man or a woman. And then I will be full and then I will feel connected. Connection is found in getting the benefits, having access to the features, and having complete ownership. This is the logic of a romance fantasy or a sexual fantasy. I can be loved and connected once I get what I want from the object of my adoration. And the great lie of the pornographic age is, until you completely fulfill your romance fantasy or your sexual fantasy, you do not have a complete self. You're not complete. You're not a complete self unless it's totally and utterly fulfilled. And that's a lie. I want you to know that's a lie. But it's a lie that is, it's in the mix now. It's in the air. You will hear that lie a million different ways in the next 10 years. In order for you to be a complete person, your ultimate sexual or romantic needs must be completely fulfilled. I tell you what, I I read this, I'm off script here, but there is a very sobering article in, I think it was GQ, about the age of dating in the age of Tinder. Essentially, what it's describing is, is the, use of a, 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 the use of an app in order to connect with people who are, who are available either for dates or for sex, hooking up. And everybody's unhappy, and it's starting to break down. This is what happens. This is what's happening right now. I tell you, it's, I, I don't come here to say this in a condemning way or a doomsday sense, but basic humans' expressions of sexuality are getting more difficult. Just the, even the, 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 basic, the, the basic sex act for some young adults is becoming impossible 
because of what pornography has done to their brains and their bodies. It's no exaggeration. Um, Getting married, the simple act of getting married and having kids and staying together and raising them, which which is an incredibly intimate thing. It's getting harder. It's getting more difficult. It's almost, it's, for the church even, it's getting incredibly difficult. This is the, what the pornographic age is doing, is it is bending us in on ourselves, in on our fantasies, mangling our imaginations, because that's how it gets to our life. You capture the imagination and you capture the life. Turn the imagination in on itself into a pretzel. You can do the same thing with someone's sexuality and their capacity to have and raise children and have intimacy and develop intimacy. Now, that's the pornographic age. It's set against your imagination and mine too. Here's the moralistic uh, counter message that maybe you hear a lot. And maybe you're concerned that I'm going to lay it down and drop it on you. Um, You're damned for your fantasies. Damn you for your fantasies. Uh, You should be ashamed. Shame, shame, shame. You're not worthy of love. Hide in a corner. Fear. (coughs) Control. Maybe I should lock down on my imagination. Try to control it. Try to hide. Fix it. And then come out of that corner of shame. And uh, just feel like, man, I'm bad to the core. I I really am a bad person for my fantasies. Um, This will make our unresolved pain more acute. And it will drive us deeper into the mirage. It will isolate us even further, deeper into our chosen fantasies. Neither the pornographic age nor the moralistic uh, condemnation will heal the imagination. Both promise to. Both promise to set you free, but neither one does. Um, Both cause us to curve in on ourselves. Both lack hope. Both fuel despair. So, I'm a pastor, and I've come to give you some hope. Your imagination can be baptized. Baptism, as understood in the teachings of the historic church, is, if nothing else, a washing. On the deepest level possible, through the Holy Spirit. Now understand, uh, some of you understand baptism more as a, as a public declaration, devoting yourself to God. And, and that's fine. And maybe, maybe you understand there's a spiritual baptism when you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit, there's a spiritual baptism where the Holy Spirit washes you. In either case, there's a washing in baptism. In my tradition, we, we bring the two together in faith. It's not a work salvation. Um, this essential washing, this deep level forgiveness, this change of nature is possible for our imaginations. Our imagination can be washed. Our imagination can be united with Christ and yoked with Christ, filled with Christ. Imagine your imagination being filled with the glory and love of Christ, his strength and tenderness, his love. David looked on Bathsheba and said, I already own it. Jesus looked upon his bride and said, this is my body. He gave himself up for the church. 
that he might cleanse and sanctify her and her imagination, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the bride to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's your future. That's the calling on you and your imagination to be washed by Jesus through his living word to be whole and holy and without blemish. Jesus did not stop himself from taking on the form of a servant and stooping down to his disciples' incredibly smelly feet and scrubbing them and washing them. He will not stop from doing the same with your imagination through his cross and through his resurrection. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit to give you all the gifts that he came to give you. I'm here to declare that you're not condemned. You're not a condemned people. You're a called people. Jesus can restore your imagination. He can wash it. He can heal the images that haunt you. This is the path of holiness. It's a journey where our imaginations begin to feast again on God's truth, His goodness, and His beauty. It's a process of the Holy Spirit of straightening out our curvatures so that we can grow up again into our true selves. Yes, there is a death to the false self, which fantasies feed into. And that death can be painful and slow, but it's your path. And it's the path of holiness. So, here are a few tools for the journey. I'll mention a few. And here's my, if I were to say, what does the path of holiness look like for the imagination? The path of baptism. I'd sum it up like this. It is fasting and feasting in the company of Jesus. Fasting and feasting in the company of Jesus. Um, and when I say company of Jesus, you know, he has a body and it's incarnate and it's here. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. Let's take the quotation marks out of our reading of the New Testament. The body of Christ is here for you and it's in the company of the body of Christ. It's the company of Jesus where we feast or sorry, where we fast from false images and where we feast on true ones. Let's talk about fasting just for a moment. Confession of sin is a, is, a, uh, is, a, is a gift to the church. And it is available to you through the company of believers with which you're already connected. So take stock of your imagination life. And find someone you trust and confess your sins. Not to get their advice, but to confess your sins. Jesus forgives you. That other person doesn't. Um, It could be a friend, a counselor, a leader in your church. There's no condemnation. And it's incredibly freeing to walk through this process. So that's fasting. Um, And you're fasting also in the presence of Jesus. When you see yourself bending in on false stories, just invite Jesus into your imagination And let him begin to do the work that only he can do. Let's talk about feasting. We need holy symbols in our life. Um, And 
this is where you and I might be different. I embrace sacramental symbols because they're a tool on the journey of discipleship. This collar reminds me that I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a bondservant. And I need this symbol as much as anyone else. I need to look on a cross and remember what Jesus has done for me. And I need to uh, remember that he's resurrected as well. Um, Holy symbols and holy images given to the church are a way that we can begin to feast on the kingdom of God. Holy stories, stories that help us re-enter the kingdom story. Uh, I talked about uh, Lewis, but we have other amazing authors in the Christian tradition. One of them, J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm sure you've read many of these stories already. The most obvious one would be the story of Scripture. Reading, again, the story of Scripture and let it activate your imagination. Read Hebrews um, 11 and imagine these saints living before you. Another way to feast is the practice of Lectio Divina. And this is a way to read Scripture prayerfully and imaginatively. It is not separate from analysis. It's connected to analysis, but it's not analysis. A lot of us have learned the analysis of exegesis. I I learned this here at Moody and in my master's degree, the diagrams and the translation and and, and unpacking the the, uh, heiress passive. Um, Analysis should always be in the car, but it should never be driving when we open scripture. Listening to God, God speaks through scripture. So, Ignatius, when he was a young man, um, found his imagination wandering into glory fantasies, began imagining himself winning great feats in battle and earning all kinds of, of, of uh, fleshly accolades. And finally, at one point, um, he began to realize that he could actually turn to Christ through Scripture and began to see his true calling through the lens of the biblical story. And so he gave... Uh, he he uh, uh, helped the church by offering uh, a way to enter in the gospel story imaginatively, where you actually, you not only read Jesus washing the disciples' feet, you actually enter the room with your imagination, reflectively walking through the scriptures and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you as you enter the story. Many of us are afraid to do this, and I wonder why. In some cases, I think the Enlightenment has a stronger hold on the church than the Holy Spirit. We are so afraid of entering imaginatively into the scriptures. And yet we're running to pornography in all of its forms, to Netflix, etc. And enter imaginatively there. But we won't do that with the scriptures because we're afraid. We have to learn to trust Jesus again. We have to learn to trust him with our... our, um, most embarrassing uses of the imagination, and we have to trust him to develop and curate and expand our imagination as we are apprenticing under him and yoked with him. We enter scripture imaginatively entering a personal conversation with the Lord. There's an incredible blessing to that process. God gave you a hungry imagination, and the pornographic age has set itself against it. But your imagination in the company of Jesus can be baptized. I think we're going to have Q&A. Before we do, I would like to pray a prayer of blessing over you. So would you pray with me?
Living Christ, I, I do pray that you would call us up and out. I pray for everyone here. I've been praying for them uh, in preparation for this talk. And I, and I ask that if there's harmful images that have uh, seized them, either from their personal history or from encounters with pornography, I pray, Living Christ, that, that you would uh, speak life to them and give them hope, that you can actually baptize and cleanse what the enemy has attempted to destroy. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with hope through your Holy Spirit, hope that they're not condemned, hope that they have a great story to live, that they have good work to do in the world, restore our vocations to us, restore our loving work in the world by by capturing again our imaginations. And now may Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shine upon you and scatter the darkness from before your path. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Yeah, so now we'll do a little Q&A. Uh,